Hello, I'm Karen Filipkowski, and this is the Opiongo Line, a new podcast sponsored by the Station Keepers, a group of local volunteers who have invited us here tonight in the Old Barry's Bay Railway Station to kick off our Canada Day celebrations, which will be happening here over the next few days. And to help us do that, we have our very own Opiongo Readers Theatre with us, including four of our featured vocal performers, Francis Mawson, Lois LaSole, Danielle Paul, and Roger Paul. We're certain you have many other opportunities to celebrate Canada Day, but we think we've put together something unique. You see, we're all Canadians, which means, well, we're not big on tooting our own horn, singing our country's praises, or wildly waving the flag. That's what Americans do. And we're definitely not Americans. Not that there's anything wrong with being American. No, it's just, well, we're Canadians, and Canadians of the people are very self-conscious of what others think of us. That old French writer Voltaire, for instance, thought of Canada as little more than a few acres of snow, not even worth fighting over. And then there was our own T.C. Halliburton, writing as Sam Slick in 1836, who thought Canadians were just generally only good for going to the dogs. True, Charles Dickens took a much more positive attitude. He visited us in 1842 and was the first to notice our now often noted quiet Canadian characteristic. Indeed, it was Dickens who said Canada was advancing quietly, old differences settling down, and being fast forgotten, public feeling and private enterprise alike in a sound and wholesome state. Nothing flush or fever in its system, but health and vigor throbbing in its steady pulse. It is full of hope and promise. Nice, but perhaps it makes us, makes us sound a little dull. Not exactly a place of civil wars or raging riots, or, if the truth must be known, and it must, not even a place where, though many expect it, we're not constantly suffering those winters of discontent that seem to plague some of Shakespeare's folks. Most of us would agree with Dickens. He's never over the top, unlike some of our own famous politicians, such as Edward Blake, who in 1891 described Canada as a goodly land, endowed with great recuperative powers and vast resources, as yet almost undeveloped, inhabited by populations moral and religious, sober and industrious, virtuous and thrifty, capable and instructed, the descendants of choice immigration, of men of mark and courage, energy and enterprise, in the breasts of whose children still should glow the sparks of those ancestral fires. Whew. Sounds like somebody we should aspire to be, but it can't be us, can it? Of course, Blake was a politician, and so we're used to being buttered up like fresh young turkeys who know they're eventually going to get roasted. Still, we do accept a certain amount of praise, especially if it's from politicians we like. Take Winston Churchill. In 1930, he said that Canada, no state, no country, no band of men can more truly be described as the linchpins of peace and world progress. High praise. But given that we're Canadians, a bit embarrassing. Sure, we've got a pretty nifty reputation for being peacekeepers. One of our prime ministers, Lester Pearson, even won a Nobel Prize for peace. 
but it's not what we're comfortable hearing. We prefer what one of Canada's great historians, Arthur Lower, once said about us in 1941. Canada is a secondary and second-rate country without much depth of experience. Everyone admits that, too freely, sometimes. Or Marshall McLuhan, one of our internationally known media gurus. He said we had no identifiable identity, no real characteristics that stick out, say like an American, a Brit, or the French. Okay, maybe McLuhan was a bit too harsh. We've notched more than a few first-rate accomplishments under our belts internationally. But does hockey or Celine Dion really make Canada great? No, I'm with Bruce Hutchison, who I think hit the nail on the head when he said, my country is hidden in the dark and teeming brain of youth upon the eve of becoming an adult. My country has not found itself, nor felt its power, nor learned its true place. It is all visions and doubts, hopes and dreams. It is strength and weakness, despair and joy, and the wild confusions of restless strivings of a child who has passed into adulthood, but is not yet an adult. I'm for all that, especially if it means I'm forever 19 years old. But enough about what other people think of us. It's time to tell everybody what we think of ourselves. So let us begin, as Churchill might say, not at the beginning, nor the end of the beginning, but let us begin before the beginning. The year is 1862, three years before Confederation, and a young journalist has just arrived in Montreal via New York, and he likes what he sees. Except he thought the British colony we now call Canada should become its own country, and not just any old country, but a special sort of country, not at all like the United States, where a civil war was then raging, nor like Britain or France or any other place in the world. His name was Thomas Darcy McGee, and his words were prophetic. It is upon this subject of the public spirit, which can alone make Canada safe and secure, rich and renowned, which can alone attract population and augment capital, that I desire to say a few words. I do not believe that it is our destiny to be engulfed into a Republican Union, renovated and inflamed with the wine of victory of which she now drinks so freely. It seems to me we have theatre enough under our feet to act another and a worthier part. We can hardly join the Americans on our own terms, and we never ought to join them on theirs. A Canadian nationality, not French-Canadian, nor British-Canadian, nor Irish-Canadian, patriotism rejects the prefix, is, in my opinion, what we should look forward to. That is what we ought to labour for. That is what we ought to be prepared to defend to the death. Heirs of one-seventh of the continent, inheritors of a long ancestral history, and no part of it dearer to us than the glorious tale of this last century. Warned not by cold chronicles, but by living scenes passing before our eyes of the dangers of an unmixed democracy, we are here to vindicate our capacity by the test of a new political creation. What we most immediately want to carry on that work is men, more men, and still more men. The ladies, I dare say, will not object to that doctrine. 
We may not want more lawyers and doctors, but we want more men in town and country. We want the signs of youth and growth in our young and growing country. One of our maxims should be early marriage and death to old bachelors. Seriously, if we would make Canada safe and secure, rich and renowned, we must all liberalise locally, sectionally, religiously, nationally. There's enough room in this country for one great free people, but there is not room enough under the same flag and the same laws for two or three angry, suspicious, obstructive nationalities. Dear Most justly dear to every land beneath the sun are the children born in her bosom and nursed upon her breast. But when the men of another country, wherever born, speaking whatever speech, holding whatever creed, seeks out a country to serve and honour and cleave to, in weal or in woe, when he heaves up the anchor of his heart from its old moorings and lays at the feet of the mistress of his choice, his new country, all the hopes of his right manhood, he establishes by such devotion a claim to consideration not second even to that of the children of the soil. He is their brother, delivered by a new birth from the dark wombed Atlantic ship that ushers him into existence in the new world. He stands by his own election among the children of the household, And narrow and unwise is that species of public spirit which, in the perverted name of patriotism, would refuse him all he asks. I'm not about to talk politics, but I am so thoroughly convinced and assured that we are gliding along the currents of a new epoch that if I break silence at all in the presence of my fellow subjects, I cannot choose but speak of the immense issues which devolve upon us at this moment in this country. Though we are alike opposed to all invidious national distinctions on this soil, we are not opposed, I hope, to giving full credit to all the elements which at the present day compose our population. We Irishmen, Protestant and Catholic, born and bred in a land of religious controversy, should never forget that we now live and act in a land of the fullest religious and civil liberty. All we have to do is, each for himself, to keep down dissensions which could only weaken, impoverish and keep back the country. Each for himself, do all he can to increase its wealth, its strength and its reputation. Each for himself, to welcome every talent, to hail every invention to cherish every gem of art, to foster every gleam of authorship, to honour every acquirement and every natural gift, to lift ourselves to the level of our destinies, to rise above all low limitations and narrow circumscriptions, to cultivate that true Catholicity of spirit which embraces all creeds, all classes and all races, in order to make of our boundless province, so rich is known in known and unknown resources, a great new northern nation. We the North. Now that's a slogan someone should invent. But if one thing that Darcy McGee makes clear 
It is our position, a sort of sleeping, quiet mouse, as it were, north of our great southern elephant, the United States. Always in our minds, and rarely, like some itch we just have to scratch, always a tad troublesome to deal with, whether it's the War of 1812, apparently they're still mad we burnt down the White House, or more recently, the Trump tariff wars today. Still, it's interesting to know nothing really changes in over 150 years. Take our very own James Skeed. For those of you who don't know, in 1840, Big Jim Skeed paddled up the Madawaska River from Ottawa with his two brothers, Bob and Ed, and they set up his lumbering operations less than 10 kilometers west of here at Bark Lake, where Skeed began making his fortune in the lumber trade. But when some future fathers of Confederation like Darcy McGee and Joseph Howe and Sir John A. needed to send somebody down to the United States to talk free trade as the American Civil War was wrapping up in 1865, who should they pick to push their case but our very own Big Jim Skeed from Bark Lake? And boy, did that quiet Canadian give those Americans an earful. Foremost amongst the natural productions of British North America, the inexhaustible supplies of pine drawn from the Canadian forests furnish an article of commerce which has been, is, and will be for many years to come a great staple of trade. Other countries produce greater varieties, but none such fine and large timber in merchantable quantities as Canada. Its value as an article of commerce may be ascertained from the fact that the yearly production of material equals 70 to 80 millions of cubic feet of partially manufactured timber exported and the operations consequent thereon involve serious outlays. A description of the localities from which the lumber trade of British North America is drawn will illustrate the favorable conditions under which its commercial value is realized. Of particular interest is the Valley of the Ottawa. It covers an area of 87,761 square miles. It is traversed throughout its greatest length by the river from which its name is derived. Its tributaries are of great magnitude, many of them being from the three to 400 miles in length, while the main stream has a course of 780 miles and is navigable for canoes to its source. The valley of this river is the principal site of the lumber trade and has been so since June 11, 1806, when the first raft left the mouth of its great tributary, the Gatineau. Yet in the 59 years which has since elapsed, little over 20,000 square miles have been denuded of merchantable lumber. Its principal productions are white and red pine, both of the largest and best quality on this continent. It also yields tamarack, spruce, ash, white oak of a very superior quality, elm, birch, and all varieties of maple. As before stated, the supply can only be circumscribed by the demand, and new markets would open a trade unrivaled in magnitude. If all trade restrictions were withdrawn and a portion of the traffic in breadstuffs passed down the Ottawa, a profitable return freight was a certainty 
on which the forwarder could reckon, which he can do on no other route. This important commercial element will be very little affected in mercantile value by the abrogation of the reciprocity treaty or any hostile legislation whatsoever. As a trade, it was in existence before the treaty was thought of as a possibility, and that to a very considerable extent, too, although a heavy duty was levied on it by the United States government. The liberality of the imperial government was manifested by allowing the provincial executive to suspend the operation of the navigation law in 1847, so that vessels belonging to the United States actually shipped lumber at Ottawa and actually traversed 250 miles of our canals and eternal waters on the same footing as British vessels seven years before the Reciprocity Treaty was negotiated. And since that event, no circumstance has arisen which can be charged to either the provincial or imperial governments as manifesting an intention on their parts to construe the terms of the treaty in an unfair or illiberal spirit. On the contrary, while well aware that one of its most important stipulations are yet unfulfilled, that relative to the navigation of state canals, and that no attempt has been made to meet the conditions by the case by the United States government, and that a very restricted and illiberal construction has been put on the certain articles to be admitted in the free schedule, yet the United States craft have been allowed to navigate our canals free of tolls for more than one season and on the same footing as British vessels. During the year 1864, the number of American vessels navigating these canals were 1,433, while not one British craft was found on their waters. We have admitted American manufactured flour, whether from home-grown or Canadian wheat. We have admitted pig iron, pig lead, and crude copper free of duty, and it certainly must be a considerable amount of casuistry to make tongued, grooved, and planed more of a manufactured article than the same material fresh from the saw. The course followed by the United States government is directly the reverse of this. They will not admit Canadian manufactured flour without an affidavit that it is not the produce of wheat grown on their own territory. They keep councils at our principal ports from whom we must obtain permits before we can take a cargo of free goods to any of their ports and pay for the privilege too. They levy duties on pig lead, pig iron and crude copper and planed, tongued and grooved lumber as well as other articles of agricultural produce. They deny our ship's register on equitable terms and they engross our fisheries which are valued to the eastern states alone at $3 million per annum, and for which we receive no equivalent whatever, so that, as far as we are concerned, reciprocity is a misnomer, and its abrogation would not be that fearful evil to British North America which some people in the United States imagine. The idea appears to be entertained by a portion of the people of the United States 
that the abrogation of this treaty would compel annexation. No greater political fallacy was ever broached. As a people, our interests, directly and indirectly, are bound up with those of the great empire of which we form a component part. Even our trade relations are more important with her than the United States, because she manufactures more cheaply. And the abrogation of the Reciprocity Treaty will be far more likely to give these interests a preponderating influence than otherwise. We thoroughly understand the effect of our abolition of import duties on British manufactured goods and how it would be felt on the United States revenue. And you can picture to yourselves the effect a discriminating duty in our own favor will have on the Western farmer and merchant. The issues are in your hands. We have paid pretty dearly for the privilege of trading with you, but we knew our material progress and development require some sacrifice, and we were content to pay you nearly $8 million per annum to secure that. But your politicians, by presuming that, like Esau, we would sell our birthright for a mass of pottage, will find themselves woefully mistaken. And after having inflicted on their own people a lasting injury, will perhaps begin to understand what is meant by the term allegiance. We are here to receive your overtures, to adjust with you our trade relations as reasonable and sensible businessmen. We responded freely to your call. We made no movement for the abrogation of this treaty, nor did the prospect of that consummation affect us very much. We made no effort to stay the proceedings your government wisely or unwisely had inaugurated. And when, like sensible businessmen, you proposed to talk this matter over in convention, we acceded to your request and are here to receive your propositions. Sincerely desirous of preserving amicable trade relations with our neighbors, we are fully aware of the advantages we enjoy physically, geographically, and commercially, and are not disposed to throw them away for theoretical or speculative benefits of more than doubtful character. I have endeavored to place fairly before you the advantages the British North American provinces possess in assisting the development of your own and their resources, and which, by a judiciously planned system of commercial intercourse, can be fully realized. In concluding this address, I would remark that, as this is the first great commercial convention on record, it is to be hoped its proceedings will mark an era in the history of mankind, characterized by peace, goodwill, and the removal of national and sectional prejudice or jealousy, as well as the establishment of an enlightened commercial policy more in accordance with the progress of civilization than that hitherto followed. We frankly and freely extend to you the right hand of fellowship, content to live with you as friends and neighbors, though still devoted adherents to the British Empire and loyal subjects to our gracious Queen. Our man Skeed, of course, became a senator when the Dominion of Canada was formed on July 1st, 1867. And he went on to do great things for both our own locale and Canada in general. But in true Canadian tradition, few remember James Skeed today. 
so much so that the only vestige of his contribution to Canada is a lonely little street sign that stood for years west of Barry's Bay and that never quite spelled his name correctly. Ah, that's Canada for you. Sometimes a great nation, sometimes a place you just can't believe. Imagine in 150 years if there was a single street sign and it misspelled Gretzky's name. Now you get the picture. Of course, boys will be boys and men will be men, which is why we're also here to celebrate some great Canadian women. Lady Aberdeen for one. 125 years ago, and in fact only a month after this very railway station opened its doors here in Barry's Bay in 1894, Lady Aberdeen gave a most interesting speech in Victoria, British Columbia. She didn't exactly read the riot act to the men in the audience, but as the Governor General's wife, she certainly gave the men of her time something more to think about than their usual after-dinner port and cigars. I must thank you, ladies who have been good enough to come out and meet me this evening in such large numbers in response to the invitation of those who have asked me to tell you the aims and working of the National Council of Women of Canada. As for the gentlemen, will you forgive me if I ignore your presence here tonight, if I try, as best I can, to forget it? I look upon you only in the light of necessary evils in your capacity as escort to the ladies. But all the same, that does not distract from the honour you have done me in being willing to be present in any capacity. Doubtless no movement affecting a considerable part of the community can prosper without the cordial support of both men and women. I trust that in this movement, the women of Victoria will be able to depend on the approval of their husbands, fathers and brothers. There is likely to be a good deal of criticism of this movement, And I would earnestly ask you, gentlemen spectators, though you are our critics in general, to try to understand our objects and to weigh the matter well before you oppose the council or divide it. You will agree with us as to our ultimate objects, I know, unity, and endeavour to communicate mutual strength and sympathy between all women workers, and to stimulate all work for the good of others. Some may say that they do not see how the council is going to do all this. Let me ask them if they have a scheme of their own. If not, it is surely a solemn responsibility to try to not hinder those who are at heart trying to do God's work and to reach after his idea of unity. But now, ladies, I must set myself to my work and try to explain to you something of this National Council of Women of Canada, which is intended by its authors and promoters to forge, as it were, a golden link uniting all the women workers from ocean to ocean in bonds of sisterhood for the high and holy work which they are called on to undertake by virtue of their common womanhood and their common responsibilities in this fair country. I'm afraid I must ask you to bear with me while I go through the dry details of our organization. But before doing this, I would like to remove some misapprehensions concerning the council by stating what it is not. It is not a political association. Some English newspapers stated at one time that I was organizing a political association of women throughout Canada for the purpose of turning out the present government, quite apart from the fact that I myself have forgotten for some time what politics mean, this council has nothing to do with politics. If there existed a political association of women in the Dominion, they could be represented on it. 
This council is not a trades union. Although trades unions or friendly societies of women can be represented on it. It is not a temperance association, although temperance societies can and are represented on it. It is not a society for revolutionizing the relation of mistresses and servants, although we hope that the present difficulties in connection with domestic service will receive much consideration. It is not a religious body only, nor a philanthropic body only, nor an educational body only. It is none of these things, and yet it is all of them. And that, I think, is the keynote of the object of this meeting. We desire to form a body which will, as it were, focus the work and thought of women in Victoria, the work and thought of all the different activities being carried on. That is the object of the National Council of Women of Canada, and it is on the same principle that all the local councils throughout Canada are intended to be formed. We all here agree that the home is women's first mission. But what does that involve? Sometimes it is spoken of as if home duties meant a narrow life, a circumscribed life. But if we ask ourselves what home means to each of us, what it should mean to each of us, we shall see that it by no means involves a narrow life. If we ask ourselves, each of us, to think out what would be the ideal for ourselves, each in our own position, in our own home, of what we could do and be, and if we could rise to that idea of character and influence and life and self-sacrifice, you will at once see how much it means and how much we have to learn. Sometimes people speak as though the power to be homemakers came by instinct to women, but do not we know we who are in our homes as wives, mothers, sisters, daughters, that this is by no means the case? Do we not each of us realize our want of training and of knowledge in our contact with other lives on which so much depends? Cannot we in these general conferences and meetings which are to bring us together as women who are wanting to fulfill their duty in the world, cannot we specially confer together on some of these matters which touch the very inmost springs of our lives? Do we not need to know much more of how to train our children, how to study our children, to understand the different characters of those little ones that have been confided to us and whom we often damage because we do not understand and enter into the individuality, the different characteristics of each one and the different training needed to fit them for their work in life? Cannot these subjects bearing upon the relations of parents and children be made, as I trust they will be, most important subjects in your councils? But springing up from these home duties come our social duties, which come to every woman, her duties to society. We sometimes lament the low tone of society, but if there is that low tone anywhere, whose fault is it? Is it not that of the women of the place? and is not a very grave responsibility lying upon us, and especially now in these days, when every opportunity is given to women for thorough education and for the use of her influence for the heightening of the whole tone of society. If we see the young people in our midst making pleasure the main object of life, whose fault is that? If there are two standards of morality expected, one for man and the other for woman, one for Sundays and the other for weekdays, one for religion and the other for business. Whose fault is it? Is it not the fault of those who set the tone in the home and in the social life? 
In these matters also can we not unite in our conferences those of all churches and sections of thought who desire a lofty standard of morality, whether from the secular or religious point of view? Can we not help one another to lift higher the ideal of life, whether in the home or social life, or the life of the country? Does it not depend upon us women, and especially upon those whom God has called to be mothers, to see that the children grow up with a high ideal of public life, that they should deem it to be a high privilege that they belong to this country, deem it a high honor to be trained to serve their country any way, however humble? These matters come home to us mothers. Although I am not sure that the women of any country have realized the duty incumbent upon them to bring up their children with a distinct idea of what that service means. That brings us again to the further thought of a woman's duty to her country and to mankind at large, to that wider idea of duty to which women are called in these days. The call comes to all of us in one way or another. There are few who can shroud themselves in the privacy of their homes without hearing in their hearts the summons to serve their fellow creatures in some way or another. Let it be clearly understood that we are not demanding rights by this council. We are but seeking to help one another to perform our duties in a higher spirit and with a deeper motive than ever before, although indeed it may lead us to see duties where we never saw them before. But let us never seek to escape the discipline which has sanctified womanhood, but rather let us glorify in it. Let us make it yield us its full fruits, teaching us to give our very best and our very selves to whatever work for the common good God calls us. A true force of nature, Lady Aberdeen raised a few eyebrows that night in Victoria, B.C., but she was on the right track. But as all women know, there's more to be gained with honey than vinegar. So in 1914, when Nellie McClung failed to get Rodman Roblin, the then Premier of Manitoba, to support a woman's right to vote, he flatly refused to even consider Nellie's new, wild, revolutionary idea. Little Nellie McClung orchestrated one of the great moments in Canadian political theatre. The following evening, Nellie dressed up as Roblin, pantsuit and all, and mimicked his inflated rhetoric in a mock speech which she made to a group of women, all pretending to be women legislators being asked to consider giving the right to vote to men. Gentlemen of the delegation, it gives me great pleasure to welcome you here today. We like delegations, and although this is the first time you have asked us for the vote, we hope it will not be the last. Come anytime and ask for anything you like. We wish to congratulate you, too, on the quiet and ladylike way in which you have come into our presence. And we assure you that if the working men in England had fought for their franchise, in such a pleasing and dignified way, the results would have been entirely different. If they had used these peaceful means and no other, they might still be enjoying the distinction and privilege on waiting on members of Parliament. But I cannot do what you asked me to do for the facts are all against you. Manhood suffrage has not been a success in the unhappy countries where it has been tried. They either do not vote at all, 
or else they vote too much, and the best men shrink away from the polls as from a pestilence. Manhood suffrage would plunge our fair province into a perfect debauchery of extravagance, a perfect nightmare of expense. Think of the increased size of the voters list. We have enough trouble with it now. Of course, with the customary hot-headedness of reformers, you never thought of that, oh no, just like a man, you never thought of that expense. I tell you frankly, I won't do it, for I have always loved and reverenced men. Yet though I love them, I know their frailties. If once they are let to vote, they become addicted to it. And even if the polls are only open once every four years, I tell you, I know men, they are creatures of habit, and they'll hang around the polls all the rest of time. <laughs> man was made for something higher and holier than voting. Men were made to support families and homes, which are the bulwark of the nation. What is a home without a father? What is a home without a bank account? He who pays the grocer rules the world. In this agricultural province, man's place is the farm. Shall I call men away from the useful plow and the necessary harrow to talk loud on street corners about things which do not concern them? Shall I cheat the farm by turning honest plowmen into dishonest and scheming politicians? I tell you no, for I was born on the farm and I am not ashamed to say so. The farm, the farm, the dear old farm, will never mortgage the farm. In the United States of America, when men vote, there is one divorce for every marriage. For politics, unsettle men, and that leads to unsettled bills and broken furniture and broken vows. When you ask me for the vote, you are asking me to break up peaceful and happy homes and wreck innocent lives, and I tell you again frankly, I will not do it. I am an old-fashioned woman. I believe in the sanctity of marriage. Politics unsettles men and enters every department of life with its blighting influence. It even confuses our vital statistics. They tell me that where men vote, when the election is very close, men have been known to come back and vote years after they were dead. Now, do you think I'm going to let the hallowed calm of our cemeteries be invaded by the raucous views, voice of politics? I know I am a factor in the affairs of this province. If it were not for this fatal modesty, which on more than one occasion has almost blighted my career, I would say that I know I have written my name large across the province. So large indeed, we have had to move the boundaries to get it all in. And my most earnest wish for this bright land of promise is that I may long be spared to guide its destiny among the nations of the earth. I know there is no one but me who can guide this ship of state. I actually tremble when I think what, what might happen to these leaderless lambs. But I must not dwell on such an overwhelming calamity, but go forward in the strong hope that I may long be spared to be the proud standard bearer of the grand old flag of this grand old party, which has gone down many times to disgrace, but 
Thank God, never defeat. Nellie eventually got her way. Two years later, in 1916, women in four western provinces got the right to vote, with the rest of the provinces following suit, though Quebec did manage to hold out against women until 1940. Indeed, if it weren't for the two world wars, women might still be waiting on men to grant them the right to vote. But with war comes, curiously, many opportunities. And strangely for Canada, the First World War in many ways made Canada's international reputation. Put another way, more Canadians died in Europe in World War I than the 58,000 Americans who died in the Vietnam War. And don't think countries like France weren't grateful. Indeed, in one of the great battlegrounds of the so-called Great War, Canadian soldiers made such a notable contribution that the French government built a very famous monument on Vimy Ridge. It is still to be seen today. And so, in July 1921, our then Prime Minister, Arthur Meehan, went to France to christen it. And when he did, he said something quite unexpectedly eloquent for a Canadian. We repeat it here that it be remembered, especially on the coming Canada Day, if only to give you something to think about when you look upon all those red maple leaf flags. The Great War is past. The war that tried through and through every quality and mystery of the human mind and the might of the human spirit. The war that closed, we hope forever, the long, ghastly story of the arbitrament of men's differences by force. The last clash and crash of Earth's millions is over now. There can be heard only sporadic conflicts, the moan of prostrate nations, the cries of the bereaved and desolate, the struggling of exhausted peoples to rise and stand and move onward. We live among the ruins and echoes of Armageddon. Its shadow is receding slowly backward into history. At this time, the proper occupation of the living is first to honor our heroic dead, next to repair the havoc, human and material, which surrounds us. And lastly, to learn aright and apply with courage the lessons of the war. Here in the heart of Europe, we meet to unveil a memorial of our country's dead. In earth, which has resounded to the drums and tramplings of many conquests, they rest in the quiet of God's acre with the brave of all the world. At death, they sheathed in their hearts the sword of devotion, and now from oft-stricken fields they hold aloft its cross of sacrifice, mutely beckoning those who would share their immortality. No words can add to their fame nor so long as gratitude holds a place in men's hearts can our forgetfulness be suffered to detract from their renown. 
For as the war dwarfed by its magnitude all contests of the past, so the wonder of human resource, the splendor of human heroism, reached a height never witnessed before. Ours, we thought, prosaic days, when great causes of earlier times had lost their inspiration, leaving for attainment those things which demanded only the petty passing inconveniences of the hour, and yet the nobility of manhood had but to hear again the summons of duty and honor to make response which shook the world. Danger to the treasury of common things, for when challenged, these are the most sacred of all. Danger to them ever stirred our fathers to action, and it has not lost its appeal to their sons. France lives and France is free, and Canada is the nobler for her sacrifice to help free France to live. In many hundreds of plots throughout these hills and valleys, all the way from Flanders to Picardy, lie 50,000 of our dead. Their resting places have been dedicated to their memory forever by the kindly, grateful heart of France and will be tended and cared for by us in the measure of the love we bear them. Above them are being planted the maples of Canada in the thought that her sons will rest the better in shade of trees they knew so well in life. Across the leagues of the Atlantic, the heartstrings of our Canadian nation will reach through all time to these graves in France. We shall never let pass the spirit bequeathed to us by those who fell. Their name liveth forevermore. Profound, but as all Canadians know, life goes on. And so by 1925, the same old, same old kept happening. Those women activists, you'd think they'd be happy with getting to vote. But oh no, nothing's ever quite good enough in Canada. It's so second rate. And apparently, Canadian women in the 1920s we're all not just flappers crazy for dancing. Some of them seemed to want more from life, like a fair shake. They apparently wouldn't stop bothering the men politicians until they got what they really wanted. Equality. Imagine that. Take Agnes MacPhail. Not only did she get the vote in 1922, she became the first woman elected to Canada's House of Commons. She was also the first to suffer the slings and arrows of outrageous fortune, or put another way. She became the butt of continuous taunts and inappropriate behavior by men acting not so much like her equal, but more like schoolyard bullies. Undaunted, Agnes prevailed all through the 1920s and beyond. Here she is waxing eloquently about Canada's antiquated divorce laws. It is a fact that all women contribute more to marriage than men. For the most part, they have to change their place of living, their method of work, a great many women today changing their occupation entirely on marriage, and they must even change their name. Then they work continuously for many years until death happily releases them, 
and that without wages at all. They work without pay. No one can claim that a married woman is economically independent, for she is not. Apart from some very rare exceptions, married women are dependent economically, and that is the last possible remaining bond on women. Women have struggled for ages now, and today they are ably championed in our country by the Honourable Member for West Calgary, Mr Shaw, and his friends who in this house are demanding further rights for them. When I hear men talk about women being the angel of the home, I always, mentally at least, shrug my shoulders in doubt. I do not want to be the angel of any home. I want for myself what I want for other women, absolute equality. After that it is secured, then men and women can take turns at being angels. I stress that angel part because I remember that last year an honourable member who spoke from the opposite benches called a woman an angel and in the next breath said that men were superior. They must, therefore, be gods. <laughs> I believe it is the desire of everyone in this house that the home should be preserved. I believe the preservation of the home as an institution in the future lies almost entirely in the hands of the men. If they are willing to give to women economic freedom within that home, if they are willing to live by the standard that they wish the women to live by, the home will be preserved. If the preservation of the home means the enslavement of women, economically or morally, then we had better break it. I would ask men to think of that and think of it seriously. I do believe that the economic freedom of women is one of the things that is causing increasing divorces because women will not tolerate what they once had to tolerate. You can smile about it if you like, but I know a lot of men who talk very learnedly on a subject like this and who want women to be very pure and very chaste when they themselves are not fit to associate with a chaste and pure woman. So, when we have a single standard for men and women, both morally and economically, we shall have a home that is well worth preserving. And I think we can be quite sure it will be preserved. The thing we are discussing is this. A man and a woman get married and establish a home, a domicile. They may or may not have a family. The husband deserts the woman, clears out for two years or longer. The wife wants a divorce. But according to our law, she must chase her husband over the face of Canada in order to sue for divorce. It is a humiliating thing. If domicile is a real thing, it must be the home that was created by the marriage. The husband deserts his wife and children, forsakes the home, and then the Minister of Justice asks that the man alone should retain the domicile. If that is the law, it is a poor law, and let us change it. If the present law is based on injustice, and it clearly is, let us change it. All this bunk, if you will pardon the word, about equality between the sexes does not impress me very much. 
we are actually working towards equality and clearly from the instances cited by the Minister of Justice tonight we have not yet got equality. Woman is not yet a person in spite of the judgment of the Privy Council that she is a person in regard to the Senate at least. We need very many changes in our laws. We can make them only one at a time. This is our chance at this one and we will make the most of it. Of course, Agnes, like all good politicians, knew that old Canadian truism about honey and vinegar. If you want to get anything done in this country, use a little humour, if not whimsy. Even one of our most doer, if not sober, Prime Ministers, Mackenzie King, knew a thing or two about whimsy. One day in 1925, a little girl named Elizabeth, who lived in South Africa, wrote a letter to Canada. She addressed it to, Dear Government. She was worried about what she had heard were redskins being locked up on reserves and not being allowed to shoot grizzly bears. For whatever reason, Prime Minister King decided to answer it himself. For those of you who know the Yes, Virginia, There is a Santa Claus letter, famous south of the border, bear in mind that we too in Canada have our very own answer to that bit of American whimsy. Dear Elizabeth, I cannot begin to tell you how very pleased the members of the Government of Canada were when they received your letter. Some of the letters they receive are so very hard to read, not beautifully written as yours was, and sometimes people ask for the most extraordinary things. You would hardly believe me, I am sure, were I to tell you all the things the people in Canada ask for. The only difficulty about your letter was that each minister thought he should answer it. However, I was very firm and told them I was the one to do it. I then spoke at once to the Minister of the Interior who looks after Indians, and he tells me, Elizabeth, that there is nothing you need worry about. It's like this. Supposing the Indians had all gone a-hunting, someone might come and settle on their lands or steal their tents, all kinds of dreadful things, while they were away. So the government just puts up big signs. This land is reserved for our Indians, and no one dares to touch anything. But the Indians are never shut up, Elizabeth, and if any grizzly bears come, they can always shoot them if they feel like doing so. You say you are coming to Canada when you are 15. That is splendid. The Minister of the Interior says that if he is still Minister of the Interior, you can never be quite sure, he will see that we have a good supply of Indians on hand. The Minister of Defence says that if he is still Minister of Defence, he will give them plenty of ammunition with which to shoot the bears. And I feel that someone else, probably the Minister of Agriculture, will arrange for the grizzly bears. So that's all right, Elizabeth. But there is something I want you to tell me about South Africa. This government has never been there, but perhaps someday they might feel like going. Now, is it true, Elizabeth, that when you have your tea in the garden, lions sometimes come and sit down beside you? And when you go for a walk, do you have to be very careful for fear a rhinoceros or a hippopotamus might want to walk with you? 
it would be apt to make the government very nervous. There is so much you must tell me when you come. Of course, I know you always ride on elephants. But I shall have to say goodbye now. It was very nice of you to write. We all thought the letter paper beautiful. Will you let me thank you again for the government and with all good wishes say at present goodbye, Elizabeth. Yours sincerely, W.L. Mackenzie King. Time now for a short break, but do come back. We've got some more whimsy, some more profound words, some more wild and crazy stuff. We've even got a bit of near rioting in Winnipeg of all places at a Royal Canadian Legion meeting. <laughs> 